Well, hey, before we get started, um, we, a bunch of us had the opportunity last night to be at Northwoods Community Church, and we had the opportunity to be a part of a worship night. Uh, we were able to see John Bevere speak, and um, there's really not words to explain how impactful it was. It was, for those of you that were there, I think you can probably speak to it. It was an absolutely incredible evening. Um, it wasn't just a concert. It wasn't just somebody delivering the message. Um, I can I can tell you that there was uh, that the Holy Spirit was moving in that place last night. And um, if you didn't have an opportunity to go, I would encourage you that um, we'll be more um, intentional and in making sure that you're aware of events like that as they come to the Peoria area because um, it was it was life changing. I think for a lot of people um, to see literally thousands of people stuffed into a church worshiping their guts out was incredible. And so um, if I do lose my voice today, and that's entirely possible, um, get a little froggy, it's because I was, I was singing my guts out last night. And it was awesome because it was crazy loud, so I could sing as loud as I wanted. I, did, I couldn't even hear myself singing, which is about the right volume for me. But as, uh, as, as we were going through last night, and, and I actually had this thought, um, it's just kind of been percolating in my mind all week. I came across this photo as I was preparing for my message. And um, I, guys, we are so, so blessed, not only to live in this country, but to be able to meet in a facility like this. And, you know, I, I'm the same as you guys, right? I mean, sometimes you know, we stop by Starbucks on the way to church, and they get your order wrong or whatever, and you come to church, and you're grumbling. Maybe the kids were fussing in the morning or, or what have you, and, and we come to church with just, man, really an awful perspective, and we are so, so, so blessed to be able to meet where we want, talk to people about the gospel wherever we want, be able to worship wherever we want, be able to worship in a facility like this, and this is so interesting, right? So this is a recent photo, and I don't know if you can see it very well, but uh, this is a recent photo from the Philippines. And man, we have to learn to check our perspective, and we have to learn to have hearts of joy. Look, look at this picture, guys. I just, I couldn't, maybe it doesn't impact you the way that it did me, but I just couldn't turn my eyes away from it as I just looked at these folks coming to church in knee-deep water, so that they could be in the house of God on Sunday and worship and be a part of a community. And so I just want us all, this doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with my message other than tying it into the fact that perspective is huge. And we can either choose to be joyful or we can choose not to be joyful. And again, I'm, I'm right there with you. The days that the kids are acting up or disobedient or work's not going the way you want or somebody's you know, dragging your, your name through the mud, it can be hard, but we have to be able to have great perspective. And, and one final thought before we dive into this. So um, this also is not an illustration of how you should worship, all right? So, so the, the sweet lady in front here with her arms folded and then the other lady in back, they're both going to get a pass because they're standing in knee-deep water. So we're, we're going to give them some grace, but this is not the preferred approach to worship, all right? So if your arms are crossed in worship, it, just think of these two sweet ladies, and your only, 
permission to have arms folded in worship is if you're standing in knee-deep water, okay? All right. Well, hey, before we get going too much further, we should probably pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Oh, Holy Spirit, Lord, we just ask that you would be in this place today. Lord, we don't want to just pretend to be in church. Lord, we don't want to just check this off the list. Lord, we want this to be all about you. Lord, I know that there is a great many people here today that love you, that serve you. And Lord, we want this time, along with every moment of our lives, to be all about you, Lord. Lord, we just pray that you would give us good perspective. Lord, that you would fill our hearts with joy. Lord, that where you lead, we would follow. And wherever that is, Lord, that we would have just hearts of joy. Lord, that we would be known by our love and our joyfulness. And Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to serve you. Lord, we thank you for what you've done on the cross. Lord, as we just sang, your reckless love, not that recklessness is a characteristic of you, but that you gave it all to pursue us. Lord, to the ends of the earth, until we come back, Lord, you have pursued us. And so, Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for these things. In your name, we pray. Amen. All right. So that's like five minutes. Now we're going to get started. All right. So as Chris said, we're in a series on the life of Paul, Straight Street. And we're going to pick up in chapter 21, Acts chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 21. And we're going, to, we're going to step through the remaining chapters of Acts, okay? So I'm going to take you through. Um, we're going to weave in some stories. And, uh, and then when we're done, uh, we will have concluded the series. Heather saves the best for last. No. So anyways, we're picking up in chapter 21. And in chapter 21, we, um, we pick up with Paul. Now, I'm not going to try to recount everything that we've shared in the past few weeks. There's just been too much. If I did, we wouldn't have time for a message today. But if you've missed, um, like, the past six months, you can go back and uh, catch the podcast. I would encourage you to do so. <laughs> but we pick up with Paul, and Paul, or, Paul wants to head back to Jerusalem, Okay. And he's been uh, in his missionary journeys, and he wants to head back to Jerusalem. But here's the thing. Jerusalem is going to be a very dangerous place for Paul. Paul, as we were first introduced to him, is actually persecuting Christians, right? I mean, I think a lot of us know this. He's out persecuting Christians. He's jailing them. He's having them um, stoned and detained. Um, he essentially has it on authority from uh, the leadership of the Jewish community to go out and disband these churches that are popping up all across the region. And so we first are introduced to Paul as he's uh, going out in, in uh, persecuting Christians. And then we walk through with him his, his transformation. And then we've gone through a few weeks of his journeys. And so now he's about ready to head back to Jerusalem. And it's going to be very, very dangerous because all of the Jews that are in Jerusalem know Paul when he left, right? He was supposed to go and, and be persecuting these Christians and, and dealing with them. But yet now he's coming back and he's a totally different guy. And so it's going to be dangerous for him to be in Jerusalem. And so why does he want to be in Jerusalem? Well, in Acts 20, it says, Paul had decided to sail on past Ephesus. 
for he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia. He was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, so that he could be there for the festival of Pentecost. Okay, that makes sense. So Paul, being an observant Jew, obviously grew up celebrating Pentecost. It was one of the festivals of the Jewish community. So in part, he wants to get back to Jerusalem because he's observant, but also in part because Pentecost is the time in the new church. The church is only a few years old, maybe only a decade or so. And so in a lot of ways, Pentecost is, is seen by Paul as, as the birthday of the church. And so he wants to be back in Jerusalem. Also, if, you, if you're interested, we don't have time to go into it today, um, just Google search uh, <laughs> J- Jerusalem priority. And there's all sorts of information about why Paul wanted to be back in Jerusalem. But another reason why is Paul was an opportunistic. Paul knew that because of this festival, there was going to be just a, a, a flood of people coming into Jerusalem. So it's going to be an opportunity for him to share the gospel with them. So Paul gets on a ship and he's going to head back to Jerusalem and he sets sail. And before he gets back to Jerusalem, they pull into a harbor in Caesarea and somebody's probably got to go to the bathroom or something. So they get off and go into town. And Paul syncs up with Philip. Now, if you're not familiar with your Bible history, the apostles are starting out. They've got all this work to do. They're sharing the gospel, and they realize really quickly that they don't have enough hands on deck. So they need some people to come alongside them and help them with their sharing of the gospel. And so they appoint seven men to help share that responsibility. And one of those guys is Philip. And so Paul goes in to Caesarea, and he syncs up with Philip. And Philip, the scriptures tell us, had four daughters. And it also says that they had the gift of prophecy. Now, I have three kids, and it's total chaos all the time. (laughs) My wife is probably shaking her head. It is chaos, trust me. Somebody is always complaining, always crying. My kids are awesome, but, and I only have one daughter. Philip has four daughters, y'all. I think that we should have a moment of silence for Philip. (laughs) I can only imagine life, a day in the life of Philip, right? So Philip, he's been out all day long serving people, doing the ministry gig. He gets home. Just all he wants to do is just relax, right? Who's who's been there? You're just like, I just got to sit down. I just got to relax. Nobody talked to me for a minute. And what happens, right? Oldest daughter, she comes in. Father, man, you've been gone all day. The trash needs to go out. You need to take it to the burn pit. (laughs) Philip's probably like, honey, I know, I know. I promise I'll get to it here. Just can I have like five minutes? And because she's a daughter and also has the gift of prophecy, she's like, Father, um, The Lord has given me a vision, and that vision is you getting up right now to take the trash out. So Paul gets to Jerusalem, and the first thing that happens is he syncs up with James and the apostles. And so he's going to share what all has been happening as he's been um, out uh, around the area. And so he's sharing what's going on, and he's talking about all the conversions that are happening, whole towns and cities giving their life to Christ. 
And the apostles are listening to this, and they're probably just soaking it up, right? The good news is coming back, not just that's happening in Jerusalem, but all around the region. And after Paul gets done sharing all this, it says that they praised God. And can I tell you that that is happening still yet today? In this church and churches all over the planet, as people are giving their life to Christ, the church, the body of Christ, is praising God for their salvation. And so as soon as Paul gets done, almost immediately they're like, Paul, that's amazing. We got this problem. There's been some false accusations against you, and we feel like we need to squash them before they they grow legs and go anywhere. And so in order to deal with this, we think that you should go to the temple tomorrow with these four guys that need to go through a purification purification ceremony. And in order, once you get done, It'll squash these claims, and we'll all be good. So Paul's like, yeah, sure, let's do that. So the next day he gets up, he goes with the four guys into the temple, and the scriptures tell us that as soon as he gets there, a great riot broke out, a great riot. Now, as I've said many times before, I am not musical. I'm an idea guy. So Phil, I think our worship band should be called A Great Riot. I think that that would be... The perfect worship band name, just a great riot. But in all seriousness, Paul gets to the temple, and immediately some Jews from Asia start lobbying these these false accusations against him. And it says, the whole city was rocketed by these accusations, and the great riot followed. Paul was grabbed and drug out of the temple, and immediately the gates were closed behind him word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. See, as is the case with almost all the text in the Bible, there are many layers to what's happening here. And what is laid out at face value in the text really doesn't give it justice to what is happening. So although the the Jews had little holiness themselves, is what the scriptures say, they had great reverence for the temple And so it says that they grabbed Paul and they drug him out. Now, the reason that they drug him out wasn't because it was crowded and they're like, hey, we need to go have a conversation with Paul. Let's drag him out of the temple so that we can have a conversation. The reason that they drug him out is because they couldn't kill Paul within the confines of the temple. So when they say that they drug him out, it was literally, we're taking him out because we're going to kill him. Once he gets out of the the gates of the temple, it says that the gates were physically closed behind him. Again, this isn't just because the air conditioning is getting out. They're closing the the temple gates because it's a both physical illustration that he has been basically shut off and a spiritual illustration that he has been shut off, that he was not going to be allowed to pollute the sanctity of the temple. So they take him out and they're about ready to get to kill him. And he's bound in, or excuse me, then the Romans come and they, and they inter, intervene. So the Roman commander had heard of the commotion. He comes and they bind Paul and they're about ready to take him off. And this is a fulfillment from just a few verses before that it's predicted that he would be bound and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. So as Paul is getting drug off, um, he turns to the Roman commander and he says, hey, can I address the mob? Now, this is really unusual. And again, here's another instance where we don't have time to get into the details of why the Roman commander would have allowed Paul to turn and address the crowd. Um, 
uh, the, the, the kind of the summary is, is that two things happened. One, there was some confusion by the Romans of who Paul actually was. They hadn't quite determined. They actually thought maybe he was somebody else, a, uh, um, basically a, a, someone that was causing trouble within the Roman community. So they thought that maybe that was him. But then the other thing was is that he likely uh, asked for permission to address the, address the Jews in Greek, and that would have caught the Roman commander off guard. And so they give him this permission. He turns and he addresses the crowd. And when he does, he basically goes through his genealogy, his background, his upbringing, and it's meant to convey a level of authority to the Jews that are listening. Like, hey, I, I was brought up in this community. I have, I've been instructed in this community. I understand um, the, our laws and our religion. And so he, has, he conveys this authority to the Jews. But during this whole process, what really kind of struck me in my research and something that I've, I've thought before is the similarities between Jesus's arrest and Paul's arrest. Now, this isn't my own idea. Um, I was actually uh, encouraged that there has been a lot of research done um, in biblical text about the similarities between Jesus' arrest and Paul's arrest. It's not a coincidence that there are these similarities. You know, both men, so Jesus, for example, Jesus is uh, in Jerusalem, and he's arrested in the garden while he's praying, right? Paul is arrested in the temple as he's praying. Both men are bound and took to the Jewish authority, the high council. And both men, neither Jesus nor Paul, can they find a way to deal with the men. The, it, the scriptures talk about how there was fighting between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they can't really figure out what to do with them. And so what happens in both situations? Both men get punted to the Romans. Hopefully the Romans can deal with them. And it's this back and forth, back and forth happens in confusion. And the Romans are like, hey, they're, they're not our problem. And the Jews are like, hey, we want you to kill them. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth. The thing is, though, in both situations, both men were falsely accused. They had their character drugged through the mud. They had people saying all manner of falsehoods against them. And I don't know about you, I've had that done to me, and it's hurtful. It's painful. You don't understand it. In Paul's case and in Jesus' case, all they were simply trying to do, Jesus is trying to point people back to God. Paul is trying to point people back to God. He's trying to encourage them, hey, this is the direction. This is the way you should go. Trying to love them and point them the right direction. In both cases, their names are slandered. In both cases, their character has been assassinated. I don't know about you, but man, that can be really, really painful. When you give up your wants and your desires to fulfill the needs of somebody else, to serve somebody else, to point them in the right direction, to take their phone calls, to take their emails, to take their texts, to listen to the troubles that they're going through, and then to have that type of person assassinate your character later down the line, it's a painful thing. And both Jesus and Paul experience that. So moving quickly, Paul, again, he's paraded back and forth, right, as we step through everything that happened. And what happens eventually is that the, the Jews can't figure out a suitable way to deal with him. The Romans won't deal with him. They can find no guilt in him. The Jews can't come to a consensus on how they should deal with him. So just as they did with Jesus, the solution is 
will kill him. And so it says that the Jews started to concoct a plan, and one of Paul's nephews hears of the plan. And so he rushes to the Roman uh, commander, and he fills him in. He's like, hey, this is what's going to happen. Paul's in serious danger. And so the Roman commander takes action and sends Paul with 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 mounted troops back to Caesarea to see Governor Felix. That's quite the contingent, by the way. Paul gets to see Felix, Governor Felix, and Felix is like, man, I, I, there's nothing I can do. You, I, I find no guilt in you. So, of course, Paul then gets moved up the food chain, so to speak. He gets moved up the, the, the chain of command. He goes to see the king, King Agrippa. And once he gets there, he has to defend himself there. King Agrippa comes out and says, Paul, explain yourself. Paul explains himself. King Agrippa says, hey, I can find no guilt in him either. But the thing is, as Paul's telling the story to King Agrippa, he tells the story of his Damascus Road encounter with Christ. Paul, this is the third time that he's recounted this story in Acts. Paul likes that story. Paul should like that story. That story is not only a pivotal, pivotal moment in his life, it is arguably one of the most pivotal moments in all of human history. Paul's command was to go out and to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And as far as I can tell, everybody in this room is a Gentile. There is a really good chance that we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Christ appointing Paul and Paul's obedience to go out and share the gospel. Paul likes this story, but like all good stories, you kind of get tired of telling them sometimes. Anybody here have a really good story and you just get tired of telling it? Again, putting myself in Paul's shoes, this is something I like to do. Does anybody else do this? Put yourself kind of in, in the Bible times, like what were they doing? What were they thinking? Why did they say that? Why did they do that? By the way, this is totally made up. I don't, this is likely never happened, but this is the way I like to picture it. Paul, Paul's been out sharing the gospel, right? He's been working hard. He's been traveling from town to town to town. He's dusty. He's dirty. He's maybe on his way into his last town for the week. He goes into a tavern. All he wants is a tuna fish sandwich and a glass of wine. That's actually really gross. A glass of wine and something else. The dude's hungry, and he wants something to drink. He sits down at the table. Maybe Barnabas is with him. Maybe John Mark kicks off his sandals, pulls his robe up a little bit, puts his feet up. He just wants to relax. Sure enough, though, by this point, He's getting to be quite a famous person in the area. And people in the tavern start to look at him. They're like, hey, is that that guy, Paul? Let's go talk to him. So one person comes over. Then a couple other guys come over. And before you know it, the whole table is full with these people that are wanting to talk to Paul. And they're like, hey, are you Paul? Yeah. <laughs> hey, is that story true? about the thing, you met God on the road. I mean, can you tell that story? 
And Paul's just like, oh, my gosh, I can't tell this story again. I, I'm, I've told this story all day long. He's probably thinking, I've been teaching you noobs about Jesus for, like, <laughs> weeks and weeks and weeks. I just want to be left alone. And they won't let up, though. They just keep after him. Paul, man, you got to tell the story. You got, and, and then Barnabas is like, dude, you got to tell the story. It's a pretty good story. <laughs> Finally, Paul you know, he's like, okay, he realizes, man, I either have to tell this story or they're just not going to stop. And so he takes his feet off the table, pushes his wine out of the way, and right about then, he starts to remember the details. They start to come back into his memory of his experience with Jesus and just how profound it was. And he starts to get reinvigorated. And as he's looking at each of the guys at the table, and they're just looking back at him. They want to hear this story as bad as anybody. He's looking at them. They're looking at, he's looking at them, and they're looking at him. And he gets a smile on his face, and he just says, so there I was <laughs> on the way to Damascus. And we all know the rest of the story, right? Back to Paul and his journey. So he's been arrested. He's, um, this has not been a fast process. He was arrested in sometime 57 AD. It's now 59 something AD. It's not been a quick legal process. He's been chained and beaten and drugged before multiple legal venues, defending himself at every turn. And yet, all throughout this process, he remains obedient and he remains joyful. There's ample evidence that not only was he obedient, but he was joyful. And man, you got to know, he didn't have it easy. This was not an easy thing. He was going against his culture. He was going against his upbringing. He was going against the Roman authority. He was, the cards were stacked against him. And yet through the whole process, he's remaining joyful and obedient. It's all about our perspective, guys. It's all about our perspective. It reminds me of this story. Now, it's kind of a story and it's kind of a joke. And I'm going to try to clean it up since we're in church. But if you're offended, you can email me. Uh, my email is uh, ctaves, T-O-E-W-S, at church214.org. I read every email, guys, so feel free to send your comments. But the story goes like this. There's a father, and he has two sons, and they live on a farm, and the father needs help out in the barn one day. And so he grabs the first son, and they head out to the barn, and when they get to the barn, he gives the son a shovel and puts him in this stall full of horse poop. I mean, we're talking 10-foot-tall, steaming pile of horse poop. And the son does what you would expect the son to do. He throws the shovel. He throws a fit, starts crying hysterically. He can't believe that his father would put him in a horse stall full of poop. What on earth? And so the father gets tired of dealing with it. And so he takes the son, takes him back in the house and grabs another son. And he takes the second son out to the barn and he puts him in front of the pile of horse poop. And immediately, this son died. He literally dives into the poop. And he starts digging feverishly, throwing poop everywhere. 
And the father is like, son, son, what on earth are you doing? And the son stops just long enough, and he turns and he looks at his dad, and he says, with this much horse poop, there's got to be a pony buried in here somewhere. (laughs) It's all about perspective, guys. It's all about perspective. You see, I don't know about you, but my tendency, if I'm honest with you, is to be the first son. As we're going through life, and we encounter these obstacles, these trials, these tribulations, my first, if I'm honest with you, my first reaction is almost always, God, why would you do this? Why would you put me in front of this giant pile of horse poop? And if I'm really honest with you, the thoughts often cross my mind, man, I serve you, we give to you, we lead a church for you, And I look at some of the people around me that don't do anything for you. And at face value, they don't have any of these problems. It's just me being honest. But the reality is, is is that it's all about our perspective. Everybody has trials and tribulations. Everyone at some point has a big pile of horse poo that they're going to have to figure out how to deal with. And you can either deal with it joyfully or you can deal with it like the first son. Paul dealt with it joyfully. Paul had trial after trial after trial. And he gets to King Agrippa, and he begins to make his appeal. And when King Agrippa again can find no fault in him, Paul appeals to Caesar. And Paul can appeal to Caesar because Paul is a Roman. He has Roman citizenship. And so it's within his capability to appeal to present his case in front of Caesar. And so in order to see Caesar, he has to get put on a ship and sail to Rome. Now, we're going to enter kind of the last season of Paul's life. And he's going to sail to Rome. Once he gets to Rome, he's going to uh, essentially be imprisoned for a couple more years. But miraculously, he's going to have the ability to share the gospel while he's in prison. Eventually, he's going to be let go. He's going to go on to, to have a bit more ministry. And then he's going to be arrested again, at which point he will ultimately um, lose his life. And so as he's on his way to Rome to meet with Caesar, there's a storm. And he warns the Romans as well as the whole crew, hey, we should not get on this ship. There's a storm coming, and I don't think it's wise. But they go anyways, and in Acts 28 verse 18, excuse me, 27 verse 18. It says, the next day, a gale force winds continued and battered the ship. The crew began throwing the cargo overboard. The following day, they took some of the ship's gear and threw it overboard. The terrible storm raged for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars until all hope was lost. In verse 18, 
it says that all hope is lost. But then just a few verses later, in verse 23, an angel of the Lord appeals, appears to Paul. And what does he say? The angel of the Lord appears to Paul and says, Do not be afraid, Paul. And he goes on to tell Paul that he's going to go to Rome, that he will stand trial before Caesar. It's always struck me a little odd why in the text across Scripture, almost every time an angel of the Lord appears to someone, the first thing that they say is what? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. In Matthew, an angel of the Lord tells Joseph, do not be afraid. In Luke, Gabriel comes to Mary to tell her that she's going to have a baby. And he says, do not be afraid. When Jesus is born, an angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds and says, do not be afraid. That's always struck me as really odd. Our God is good. He is merciful. He is faithful. He is just. So why would a messenger of a God that's so good cause us to be fearful? I've realized that I've grossly mischaracterized who the angel of the Lord is. There's two reasons why. The first is I think that we've done a disservice to a lot of our children as how we paint angels, as we characterize them and, and how we illustrate them in books. The second reason is, is it's my grandma's fault. I'm going to throw her under the bus right now. Did anybody else's grandma have those little angel figurines? You know what I'm talking about? The little white ones. They're like little babies with wings, with peach cheeks. Yeah, my grandma had like an army of them in her house. That in conjunction with how we often portray angels in children's literature and books caused me for many years to kind of view angels that way, as these little tinkerbells that sit on your shoulder. Can I tell you that that is not what the angel of the Lord is? I would propose to you that the angel of the Lord is not Tinkerbell. The angel of the Lord is a mighty, mighty warrior. The angel of the Lord, hear me, the angel of the Lord is tasked with bringing the most important messages from the throne of heaven to you and I. The angel of the Lord is an absolutely imposing creature in size, in grandeur, in fierceness. It has authority over the spiritual realm. And so what type of angel do you want to represent the word of God, the message to be delivered to you? Do you want a Tinkerbell or do you want an angel that when it appears to you, as it erupts in voice, it says to you, do not be afraid. 
Shirley Paul had been praying for a long time, you guys. God, is this what you have for me? Is this really what you have for me? Am I really to be, is this really my end? I mean, surely he could have thought that. I mean, the angel of the Lord had to appear to him on the ship and say, hey, you're not going to die here. You're going to Rome. You're going to appear before Caesar. Surely he had been praying, Lord, your will be done, but is this what you have for me? Paul is a perfect example of how it's all about perspective, you guys. It's all about are we going to choose joy in our lives? He reminds us in First Thessalonians, thank you, rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Man, no matter what your situation Paul's giving us instruction right here what we're to do. And maybe you've been praying for restoration in your marriage for years or decades. Maybe you've been praying that God would give you a son or a daughter. Maybe you've been praying health over a loved one. We're never to stop praying. And I'm going to leave you with this. Paul's reminder that we should always be praying, that we should never stop praying, that we should pray about everything and anything, that it should be a continual thing in our lives. This book ended by two stories. The first is in the book of Daniel. This is a famous passage. Daniel has been praying. He's been praying for close to 70 years. His people have been um, imprisoned. And he's praying that God would set them free. And he's praying, and he's praying, and he's praying, and he's praying. And finally, what does it say? It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to Daniel. And that's the first thing that he says. Daniel, do not be afraid. Daniel had been praying for rescue for his people. He had been praying that God would answer his prayers, and the message had been sent from the throne, but it was delayed getting there. And what does is, what is the angel of the Lord say? He says, man, I would have come sooner. Thank you for not giving up. Thank you for praying incessantly because I'm here, and I would have come sooner, but I got held up in the spiritual realm. I got held up, but I'm here now. That story is bookend by another story. In the book of Luke, Zechariah has been praying. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. He's married to Elizabeth, and they had been praying for years, guys, decades, for a child. And the scriptures say that they were now too old to even become pregnant. So you know they had been praying for years and years and years. And the angel of the Lord shows up to Zechariah, and as they always do, says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying. They had prayed so long. 
I heard this a few weeks ago, and it's, you guys, it's wrecked me. Because I know there's people here today that are praying prayers just like this. They've been praying for so long that they've given up. So the angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah, and he says to him, Do not be afraid, for I'm here to answer the prayers that you no longer pray. You guys, our God is so good, and he is so faithful, that even when we give up on our prayers, he still sends the angel of the Lord to answer them. So we're going to do something a little bit different this morning as we close. I want everybody to stand up for me. And if you feel comfortable, I want everybody to, to come to the front of the stage. You know what? Scratch that. Rather you feel comfortable or not, I want everybody to come forward. I want to fill this place right here, right up front. In front of the stage, make room. Everybody come on up. And this is what we're going to do. In a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to pray over each and every one here. But this is what I want you to do. We're, gonna, we're a family here, right? And I want everybody here to put their hand on the shoulder of somebody around them. I want every eye closed and head bowed. And what I want in the next few moments is I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, what would you have me pray over this person? Lord, what would you have me pray over this person? What can I ask of the Holy Spirit to do in this person's life? Everybody here needs a prayer answered. Some of us have been praying for years, you guys, for answered prayer. And so we're going uh, to unlock that today. We're going to ask that the Holy Spirit come and be in this place and unlock the prayers that need unlocked. Father God, we thank you for this day. Lord, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to be in this place right now, Lord. Lord, we're just going to wait a moment. May the Holy Spirit fill this place, Lord. May every person here, Lord, whatever they're asking for, whatever they're praying for, Lord, whatever message from the throne of heaven they are waiting to have answered. Lord, that we would not be a people that would give up on our prayers. Lord, that we would lift high the name of Jesus. Lord, his power, his ability to answer prayers is like none other. Lord, we just ask that you would bless these people. Lord, that you would, Lord, whether it's marriages or finances or health or a relationship that's broken, Lord, we just ask for your blood over each and every person here. Jesus, in your name and in your name alone, Lord, we, we lift you high, Lord. And we just pray that we would use these next few moments, Lord, to praise your name, Lord, to sing until we cannot sing any longer, to to praise you with every ounce of energy we have, Lord. 
Jesus, we love you, Lord. We thank you for what you've done, Lord. We thank you for your reckless abandon for our lives, Lord, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.